great singing today. Um, turn in your Bibles to John chapter 4. Sorry, John chapter 14. Wouldn't that, <laughs> wouldn't that be a disaster? John chapter 14. Last week we began our study in this second of four chapters referred to as the Upper Room Discourse. John chapters 13, 14, 15, and 16. Jesus and his disciples, you'll remember, are sequestered in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. They had made these arrangements in anticipation for the Passover celebration. Notice John chapter 13, verse 1. Now before the feast of Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. It was Thursday night of the final week of Jesus' earthly life. In less than 12 hours, he would breathe his final breath while hanging from a wooden cross by nails driven through his hands and his feet. Through these four chapters, the movement of the story is a snail's pace. In the first 12 chapters of the book of John, it begins with eternity past and covers, well, it just seems like we're driving in the fast lane. We've gone to the far left, right, Eleanor? And are speeding way past the recommended speed limit. Rumor has it, anyway. <laughs> Traveling faster than the recommended speed limit, we race through the first two and a half years of Jesus' life and ministry. And then we come to chapter 13, and it seems like we move from the far left lane into a school zone, 40 miles per hour. And it feels like, well... Some of you might be feeling like we should get out and we can walk faster than this. Everything appears to be in slow motion. But this is all intentional. You see, the pace of the story communicates the importance of the content. These are crucial moments in understanding John's purpose for writing this fourth gospel account of the life and ministry of Jesus. And John chapter 14 begins with a proclamation from Jesus. Do not let your hearts be troubled. In other words, we have a problem. His disciples had been infected with a case of the troubled heart. After learning that one of them in the room would betray Jesus, that Jesus was going to leave them, and no one would be allowed to follow him. And that Peter, the spokesperson of the disciples, would deny Jesus, even knowing him, three times before the sun would rise. I think that we, we could all agree that they were infected with a troubled heart for good reason. Last week, we were not only 
considered Jesus' diagnosis the problem, but we also looked at the remedy that Jesus offered. Believe in God, believe also in me. Simple, right? You have a troubled heart? Just believe in God, believe in Jesus, and you're good to go. Has that really been your experience? It's easy to say, believe in God, believe also in me. But exercising that kind of belief. And remember, the tense of the Greek word is a continuous action. Keep on believing. Keep on trusting. Exercising that kind of belief and that kind of trust is a whole different story. It's easy to say, believe in God. Believe also in me. But not so easy to practice that kind of belief and trust when we're in the midst of those kinds of circumstances that threaten our faith and confidence in God. And Jesus knew that. That's why he continued by providing some rationale, supportive material that would help these closest companions of his to believe in God, believe also in me. And what was that rationale? The first six verses of John chapter 13. It's the hope of heaven. Heaven is a real place. Heaven can accommodate all believers. Jesus was leaving to prepare a place for them. And Jesus would return for them. And Jesus is the only access into heaven. That was last week. This morning, we want to continue our study of John chapter 14 by focusing on verses 7 through 14. And notice again how Jesus began his rationale for, in verse 2, for believe in God, believe also in me. And then he goes, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. The hope of heaven is inseparable from the Father. It's his house. And so, knowing our Father who is in heaven will enable us to keep on believing in God and to keep on believing also in Jesus when our hearts are tempted to be troubled. The question is, how? How is that possible? And that is what we're about to find out this morning how our Father who is in heaven is known. There are four ways Jesus makes the Father known. If you are able, I'm going to ask that you please stand with me for the reading from God's Word. I'll begin reading at verse 36 of John chapter 13 and read through to the end of verse 15 of John chapter 14. Beginning at verse 36. 
Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Jesus answered, Where I go, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow later. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you right now? I'll lay down my life for you. Jesus answered, Will you lay down your life for me? Truly I say to you, a rooster will not crow until you deny me three times. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will receive you to myself. And where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. Thomas said to him, Lord, we do not know where you're going. How do we know the way? Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, Show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will, all, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do, because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Our Father who is in heaven, you are the only true God, and you are a God of truth. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should repent. Has he said, and will he not do it? Or has he spoken, will he not make it good? Of course you will. The psalmist declares the very essence of your words is truth. All your just regulations will stand forever. Later, when Jesus prayed for these remaining 11 disciples, huddled with him in the upper room, he used these words, Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. Father, that is our prayer for ourselves this morning that these words of truth reported by the Apostle John here in 
John chapter 14, verses 7 to 14, would be used by your spirit to continue your sanctifying work in each one of our lives. Teach us, reprove us, correct us, train us in righteousness, all for the purpose of transforming us into the same image from glory to glory. In other words, so that we become more and more like Jesus, in whose name we come and humbly ask these things. Amen. How our Father who is in heaven is known. I found Warren Worsby's introduction to these verses extremely helpful. He points out that within the Gospel of John, the Apostle uses four different levels of knowing. Level number one, the lowest level of knowing, is knowing the facts. In John chapter 9, we have that testimony of the man who had been healed, having been blind from birth, and he's being interrogated for the second time by the Jewish religious leadership. He responded, whether he is a sinner or not, I don't know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. That was the fact. In a court of law, they just want to hear the facts. Nothing else. Nothing more and nothing less. The next level of understanding involves understanding the truth behind the facts. The Jewish religious leadership knew all about Jesus, where he came from, what he was teaching, the works that he was doing, but they refused to believe the truth behind the facts. They refused to believe that he was their Messiah. The third level of knowing introduces the relationship aspect. To know someone in this sense would mean to believe that person and become related somehow to him, connected to them. John chapter 17, verse 3 reads, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That relationship, that knowing relationship, changes everything. And then, of course, the, the fourth level where John uses know is in reference to a deep and intimate abiding relationship. This kind of relationship is what the Apostle Paul was longing for. In Philippians chapter 3, verse 10, when he says that I may know him, and the power of his resurrection, and the fellowship of his sufferings. A deep, personal, intimate, abiding relationship. Later in this chapter, chapter 14, verses 19 and 20, Jesus says, After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me, because I live, you will live also. 
In that day you will know that I am in the Father, and you in me, and I in you. A deep, abiding, intimate relationship. It's important for us to be aware of those levels or that progression in knowing from just knowing the facts to knowing the truth behind the facts to a relationship based on belief and trust to knowing in the sense of having a deep, intimate, dependent, transformative relationship. So those are the four levels to knowing our Father who is in heaven. Let me just say, we don't start at level number four. It's a progression that we move through. J.I. Packer wrote this, a little knowledge of God, of God, is worth more than a great deal of knowledge about God. Remember, even the demons know about God. James chapter 2, verse 19. Although that is where we all start, knowing the facts about God, we need to eventually move beyond that knowledge about God to knowing him intimately as our Father who is in heaven. Jesus, you'll notice in these verses, enabled his disciples to do just that, to get to know our Father who is in heaven. Look at verse 7 of John chapter 14. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. What is Jesus implying here? Things are about to change. Knowing him equals knowing the Father. And from now on implies that his disciples were about to gain a whole new appreciation for what they had learned over the past two and a half years in living and working with Jesus. His departure, his death, his resurrection would prove to be a giant leap forward in their understanding and knowing their Father who is in heaven. By the way, this is not new information. It's not the first time Jesus has made this kind of assertion in the Gospel of John. Turn back with me to John chapter 8 and look at verse 19. The, the Pharisees were attacking Jesus about claims he was making about himself. And so they come to him and they say, oh, where is your father? And perhaps that was kind of like a low blow, knowing that Jesus had been conceived outside of a marriage relationship. But look how Jesus responds. You know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. Same message. If you knew me, you would know my father. So what do you make of Philip's response in verse 8 of John chapter 14? Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for, for us. All that time they had spent with Jesus, 
And as much as they knew about Jesus, they had not yet fully grasped that in Jesus, God had made himself known. And I don't want us to be too hard on Philip. It does indicate an honorable desire. Philip is seeking, he is asking for a personal, face-to-face encounter with the Father. He's not the first one to ask for that kind of encounter. Through biblical history, right up to this very day, how many people are seeking to have that kind of experiential encounter with God to somehow prove or support their faith? Notice here there may be a tinge of disappointment and sadness in Jesus' response. Look at verse 9. And Jesus said to him, Have I been so long with you, and yet you have not come to know me, Philip? He who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Do you not believe that I am in the Father, and the Father is in me? I've underlined that phrase in my Bible. He who has seen me has seen the Father. In John chapter 1, and then down in verse 14, we read, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Philippians chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. Christ Jesus, who although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God something to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a bondservant and being made in likeness of men. He who has seen me has seen the Father. Colossians chapter 2, verse 9. And he is the radiance of his glory, Jesus is the radiance of the Father's glory and the exact representation of his nature. He who has seen me has seen the exact representation of his nature. Jesus enabled his disciples to get to know our Father who is in heaven by being who he was. God dressed in human flesh. Fully God, fully man. In other words, by being his person. Jesus, in his very nature, reflected exactly who the Father is. To know Jesus was to know the Father. In the same way, a mirror reflects your physical image, the person of Jesus mirrored the very nature of the Father, the same Father who is our Father who is in heaven. He who has seen me has seen the Father. But not only did Jesus' person reflect the Father's person, Jesus enabled his disciple to get to know our Father who is in heaven 
by his words. Look at verse 10. Do, not believe, do you not believe that I am in the Father? The Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative. He who has heard me has heard the Father. Again, this is not new information. John chapter 7, verses 15 to 16. The Jews then were astonished, saying, How has this man become learned, having never been educated? So Jesus answered them and said, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. He who has heard me has heard the Father. Jesus, in John chapter 8, verse 26, is quoted as saying, I have many things to speak and to judge concerning you, but he who sent me is true. And the things which I heard from him, these I speak to the world. They did not realize that he had been speaking to them about the Father. Jesus was claiming to be the Father's spokesman. In other words, he who has heard me has heard the Father. Later in the same chapter, verse 40, but as it is, you are seeking to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. He who has heard me has heard the Father. John 12, verse 49, for I did not speak on my own initiative, but the Father himself who sent me has given me a commandment as to what to say and what to speak. Jesus spoke only what the Father had commanded him to speak. He who has heard me has heard the Father. Jesus enabled his disciples to know our Father who is in heaven by his person, by who he was, and by the words that he spoke, and also by his works. Look at verse 10 and verse 11. But the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise, believe because of the works themselves. Apostle John refers to them as signs. Miraculous displays of power that pointed to the true identity of Jesus. That he was divine, the Son of God. Ready for a pop quiz? John gives seven of them in his gospel account. Remember? Number one. Turning water into wine. The wedding of Cain of Galilee. John chapter 2. Healing of the royal official's son from Capernaum. In John chapter 4. Healing of the paralytic. The pool of Bethesda. In John chapter 5. In John chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. Those were 5,000 men, by the way. 20,000 people, if we were to include women and children. With just two small fish and five loaves of barley. Same chapter, Jesus found walking on the Sea of Galilee. Then healing of the man, blind from birth, and 
John chapter 9. And finally, the seventh, the healing of his friend Lazarus, who had been in the grave four days already. And folks, this is just a small selection, a sample of the works that Jesus did. John chapter 20, verse 30 reads, Therefore many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. And this gospel account closes with these words. And there are also many other things which Jesus did, which if they were written in detail, I suppose that even the world itself would not contain the books that would be written. Hundreds of miracles, signs, works. Jesus' person, his words, and his works all enabled his disciples to get to know our Father who is in heaven. But there's a fourth, one more. The next three verses give a final way in which Jesus will enable his disciples to know our Father who is in heaven. The first three ways came as he glanced in the rearview mirror. This third way is something that he's looking into the future that will come as a result of Jesus' departure. It's something that is yet future. Look at the beginning of verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, sobering statement. That's the phrase Jesus uses when he's saying, take note, this is really important. He who believes in me, the works that I do, he will, also, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do. Because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Unbelievable. Jesus will enable his disciples to get to know the Father by answering their prayers. Now let me voice just a couple of cautions as we think about this whole subject. Because I think that we can really go down a rabbit hole here in a hurry. First of all, let me just say that prayer is an essential spiritual exercise for genuine believers of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verse 7, 17, commands believers to pray without ceasing. That's a commandment. It's not optional. We are to make a habit of praying both privately and publicly. But let me just say that prayer is a learned behavior. Something we develop over time as we grow in our relationship with God. Learning how to pray will... <coughs> Excuse me. Getting choked up. <clears throat> will require some intentional effort on our part. I would encourage you 
if this is not your habit, to begin by sitting down with pen and a blank sheet of paper and write out your prayers based on scripture. It's a great habit and it's a good way to start. Secondly, the caution that I want to point out is these verses are not offering a blank check. Just need a drink here. <clears throat> They're not offering a blank check. God is not a giant vending machine that spits out anything and everything we desire. He's not that. So please avoid being seduced by those two phrases in these verses. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. I know that's tempting to grab onto those and hang on for dear life, but it's, it's just not true. Whatever they are intended to communicate, you can be sure that they are not communicating a name-it-and-claim-it approach to prayer. The great Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh that he pleaded with God on at least three occasions to remove this thorn from my flesh. And God said, no. It is there to stay. To keep you from becoming proud. God's will for Paul's good was not what Paul was asking God to do. And God didn't do it. Perhaps we need to pay a little closer attention to the repeated phrase, in my name in my name. This is not intended to pro provide an abracadabra kind of end to our list of prayer requests. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Poof. Although that is an appropriate way to end our prayers. However, in this context, it is presented as a condition. Whatever you ask in my name, that I will do. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. We need to place the emphasis on the right place in my name, rather than getting whatever we ask. One commentator provided this helpful explanation. When we pray in Jesus' name, we claim to be acting for him. Someone who prays that way will always ask only what is God's will or what is sub subject to God's will, since that is always how Jesus related to his Father. It is impossible to truly pray in Jesus' name and ask something contrary to the will of God. These two acts are mutually contradictory. 
the New Testament, the prayers of believers are normally addressed to the Father in the name of the Son with the help of the Holy Spirit. The third caution I want to mention in reference to these verses is that praise greater works than these will he do. Can I just say not greater in magnitude? These disciples, well, let me just ask, how in the world can you do something greater than raising someone who has been dead for four days? Or more impressive than feeding 20,000 people with two small fish and five loaves of barley? Or giving new eyes to a man who had been born blind? No. Jesus meant greater in the sense that they would have a longer reach and be speaking to more responsive audiences. Their fruit would be greater from their efforts. Check out the book of Acts. My goodness. Peter's first sermon. 3,000 people came to know the Lord. Unbelievable. The Apostle Paul's three missionary journeys and a trip to Rome. Wow. He spread the gospel way beyond Galilee and Judea. We could even throw in that brief excursion to the province of Samaria. Jesus' geographic boundaries were pretty limited. Not to mention the two and a half years compared to almost 2,000 years and counting. Greater works in number and the extent, not the magnitude. How our Father who is in heaven is known. Jesus enabled his disciples to get to know our Father who is in heaven by his person, by his words, by his works, and by his answers to their prayers. And make no mistake about it, our Father who is in heaven, he wants to be known. Think about it. We can go all the way back to the very beginning. To the creation story, we find the implication that God wanted to be known. He made a habit of meeting with Adam and Eve and walking with them in the cool of the day. Genesis chapter 3, verses 7 and 8. They had been created with the capacity to enjoy a relationship with their creator. Unfortunately, sin had now entered the picture, and that capacity for relationship was severely impaired. But God had already tipped his hand. He wanted to be known. In Exodus chapter 3, God introduced himself to Moses through a burning bush on the backside of the desert while he was tending his father-in-law's sheep. Exodus chapter 3, verses 13 and 14 but Moses protested, if I go to the people of Israel and tell them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, they will ask me, what is his name? Then what should I tell them? 
And God replies to Moses for the very first time, I am who I am. Say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God discloses his personal name to the people of Israel. Moving to the New Testament, we are familiar with John chapter 1, verses 1 and 2. We read it earlier. The beginning was the Word. The Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. Then as we turn to Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, for in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. The incarnation. Jesus becoming a man. And in the words of John Piper, pitching his tent in our backyard. It was an unprecedented disclosure of how much God wants to be known. Romans chapter 1, verses 19 and 20 reads, Because that which is known about God is evident within them, for God made it evident to them, for since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes, his eternal power, and his divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood, by, being understood through what has, has been made, so that we are without excuse. Using theological terms, that is an expression of general revelation. It's open to all of us. Look around, folks. Nature displays the glory of God. There's enough there to hold us accountable, to make us responsible, make us culpable. General revelation is referring to God's disclosure of himself in creation and in human conscience. All of us are born with an inner voice within us. Special revelation is God's disclosure of his person, his plans, and his purposes. In the word made flesh, the person of Jesus Christ, and the written word of God, the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 reads, All scripture is inspired by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness, so that the man of God may be adequate, equipped for every good work. I want to mention Psalm 19. It is one place in the Bible, probably one of the best places, where you can see both the general revelation and special revelation of God side by side. First half of the psalm speaks to the general revelation of God. The second half speaks to the special revelation of God. But the point here is that God does not... God does want to be known. He has taken the initiative. He, he was made, has made known. <coughs> he is, oh my goodness. Excuse me again. He has been made known through the flesh and also through the written word. He wants us to know him intimately. To know him personally. And he still desires to walk with us, so to speak, in the cool of the day. God wants to be known.
So seek to know him. And not just about him, but to truly know him. And with that in mind, I want to offer four suggestions in closing. Four ways that we can seek God. Number one, pray. Ask. Plead with God to reveal himself to you. In Ephesians chapter 1, verse 17, the Apostle Paul is praying for the believers in the city of Ephesus. And here is part of his prayer. He keeps asking God, the glorious Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, to give you the spiritual wisdom and insight so that you may grow in your knowledge of God. Secondly, study. And can I just put a pitch in for the biographical accounts of the life of Jesus? Matthew chapter 11, verse 27 reads, My Father has entrusted everything to me. No one truly knows the Son except the Father, and no one truly knows the Father except the Son. And if that sentence ended there, we would be no further ahead in our knowledge of God. But Jesus continues, and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Studying the life and ministry of Jesus Christ will give us a leg up on knowing our Father who is in heaven. Thirdly, believe. John chapter 17, verse 3, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. And the Apostle John expands on that statement in 1 John chapter 5, verse 11 and 13. And this is the testimony that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life, and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe on the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. Do you hear the move from level one knowing to level four knowing, a deep, intimate, abiding, personal relationship with God. And fourthly, obey. John 14, verse 21, it states it plainly, he who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I too will love him and will disclose myself to him. Jesus enabled his disciples to get to know our Father who is in heaven. Our Father who is in heaven, he wants to be known. Seek to know him and not just to know about him. Pray to that end. Study his written revelation. Believe and obey. That's how our Father in heaven is known. And the more we come to know the Father, the less our hearts will be troubled. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Father, you desire a relationship with each one of us. 
For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through him. Your words through Jeremiah to Jewish exiles encourage us. You will seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. Father, enable us to replace our troubled hearts with hearts that are seeking you. Through the good times and through the difficult, more challenging times, may we be found searching and seeking for you with all of our hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.